feels so good to be back. <laughs> That's all I have to say. That's the whole sermon. No, it feels so good to be here with you all, live and on live stream, on your couches or in these pews. It feels really good because it's been a long summer. A good summer, a summer of growth, a summer, as you know, that I spent serving as a chaplain at Bridgeport Hospital through a program called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, but a summer from which I have so much to share that I'm sure it will keep coming up in pockets and in passages, but a summer in which I was away from some of my favorite things. One, you all, of course. Two, sleep. I didn't get a lot of that. And three, oddly, um, my favorite book, this one, the Bible, the Gospel of our Lord. Uh, so as we turn to, to today's scripture, which has been so helpful in framing my experiences this summer, let us pray this time-honored prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our main reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And it comes just after Jesus has performed one of his most public miracles. He fed 5,000 people who were hungry, and then he ministered to them. And I'll have you hear me again. He both fed the great crowd physically, tangibly, but also intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. He shared resources of food and knowledge gave them something to chew on, one might say. And then we have the rest of our narrative. And the gospel writer writes this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage has been working its way into my consciousness as I have processed my time as a chaplain for a couple of reasons. But the first one isn't very deep or intellectual. It's just that first line. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. So let me explain why. Like I mentioned, I served as a chaplain through a program that most ministers, just about every mainline Protestant minister, must undergo in order to be ordained. Each program's a little bit different, like each hospital's a little different. Some are in assisted living facilities, some are in psychiatric 
facilities. Some are in underfunded hospitals, some are in bustling trauma centers. At Bridgeport Hospital, I got a little bit of everything. It's known in the area and at my school as a particularly intense CPE program. And so in addition to your typical 40-hour work week, which is split between class time and time actually ministering to patients in the units, chaplain interns are required to spend eight nights on call. What this means is that eight times in the summer, I was in the hospital for 24 hours straight. In addition to visiting patients that request spiritual care, I carried a little black pager, a technology that I'll have you know I was very unfamiliar with. Um, but that little black pager could go off at any minute for trauma calls in the emergency department, for cardiac arrests in the intensive care units, or deaths in any unit. Whatever I was doing, whether it was trying to sleep in the little room in the basement, or having a heart-to-heart -heart with someone, holding their hands as they cried, when I heard that beep beep, I had just a few minutes to get to the scene. And I didn't really know what I would be showing up to, what I would see and experience, how I would respond, how I could be of service. I just knew I had to be there, be present that, with that patient. The goal of chaplaincy is not to fix, it's not to counsel, it's not to preach, it's not to do much of anything. The goal of chaplaincy is to walk a little way with someone in their suffering. It's to sit beside them, to listen, to be curious and ask questions to help them articulate their experiences and the feelings that are associated with them. As my supervisor would ask, how are you? Are you mad, sad, glad, or afraid? And where do you feel that emotion in your body? Where have you felt it before? I have so much respect for people in the medical profession because identifying and expressing emotions like I did doesn't cure diseases. It doesn't heal wounds. It doesn't really do much to tangibly change the situation. But somehow, by the grace of God, it helps just to know that someone's there for them, not as a patient or a person. Someone to remind you that you're real, that your experiences are real, that you are more than just the component parts of a broken body or a series of diagnoses, but a person loved and made in the image of God. Each visit looked a little different because my patients and their lived experiences were diverse. In my time in the hospital, I witnessed a lot of death. I also witnessed a lot of beautiful moments of life. I prayed with a Muslim patient and his wife who took the time to share with me religious music that brought them healing. I engaged in Reiki healing with a Brazilian patient who embraced contemplative practices and energy healing as part of her spirituality. I explored the effects of colonialism in Jamaica with a patient who lamented his American dream and longed for home. I discussed the difficulties of gang violence with victims of gunshot wounds in the emergency department. And I lamented alongside a young victim of a teen shooting at a party who said, we just can't have anything good in Bridgeport, can we? We just can't have anything good when exploring her experience of inequality. I debriefed a 16-year-old boy's experience of police violence as he lied in handcuffs in the pediatric unit. And I cried and swayed and prayed in English, in Haitian Creole, in silence with a patient who was experiencing hallucinations that were painful. I prayed the Lord's Prayer in Spanish 
more times than I did in English, with Catholic patients from Puerto Rico, Ecuador, Mexico, and many other countries. And I have so many more other small, beautiful moments filled with laughter, with tears, with moving silences, and with vulnerable storytelling. I feel very, very humbled and blessed by my time at Bridgeport. And what was universal, despite all of these diverse experiences that I had with patients, each call I received was my inability to experience what that patient was experiencing. I could hear the tears, I could see the scars, I could read their medical charts, but still I was on the other side. There exist these unbridgeable gaps between minds, between people. I will never know what it's like to be any of you, just as you'll never know what it's like to be me. Perhaps those of you with spouses know that very clearly, that even sharing an entire life with someone, you still shake your head and go, what were they thinking? What? But we don't stop trying to understand each other. We don't throw up our arms and abandon. We don't give in to futility. We communicate and we engage in empathy. And it is empathy that my time in the hospital taught me, and it is empathy that I see lived and breathed and fleshed out in the gospel reading today. Because back to that line about getting in the boat in class, we were called to process our time in the hospital, and we used a framework for processing and for developing empathy that I find really useful. It's called getting in the boat. The goal is not to empathize with the experiences of someone. That's unlikely, if not impossible. But it's to get in the boat with the feelings behind that experience. For example, I've never battled cancer. I can't relate to that experience, as I know some of you have. But I can ask how you feel, and I can listen to how you feel, and think back into times in my life when I've similarly felt those feelings, when I've felt helpless, when I've felt afraid, when I've been anxious that my life and my fate are in the hands of people I don't know. I've also never experienced systemic racism, like so many people at Bridgeport Hospital has. But I've felt the bitterness of injustice, and I, can, I can't relate to that experience, but I can listen, and I can empathize. I can reach back behind the curtain of my own mind to access the moments in my life where I felt similar, and use that to be present, to ask questions. I can, as Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I can do my best to join people in their suffering. That's getting into the boat, a boat which is moving. The boat which we understand is really a journey to get us from one place to the other, which is constantly beaten back by the waves, which isn't static or constant, but ever-changing and dynamic. That's how we feel. Our feelings are always changing. And this isn't just a lesson for chaplains, it's for all of us. As people engaged in empathy, we are all, insofar as we are human and made in the image of God, insofar as we are the body of Christ called to engage in this empathy, to sit with people in their suffering. So when I read today's passage, when I see Jesus instructing his disciples to get into the boat, I notice a few things that align very well with my lived experience this summer. First, after Jesus performs his great act of service, his miracle, his feeding of 5,000 people tangibly and spiritually, he is exhausted. He dismisses the crowds, he draws a boundary, and he goes to a quiet place to be alone, to pray, to reconnect with the divine source from which he receives his energy and his teachings. 
The lesson here is simple and clear, and we know it. We're finite. After a long day of work, we know it. And yet, how hard is it to implement that? After all, when Jesus dismisses the crowds, the people were still hungry. They were still hungry for his words, too. As I learned this summer, the great well of human need and suffering in this world never runs dry. There will always be need. And yet even Jesus had to draw boundaries for alone time. Even Jesus had to engage in self-care. Even Jesus had to acknowledge his own limitations, that he couldn't save everyone that day. How can you pour from an empty cup? The second thing that I noticed, though, is that even when Jesus dismisses the crowds and makes the disciples get into the boat without him, he doesn't leave them alone. He leaves them with each other. He asks his disciples, and that includes us, to get in the boat with each other, to go before him to the other side. And I submit to you that we are still those disciples because as much as God is present with us, as much as Jesus shows up at the end of the story, there was a time in this gospel reading in which the storm came and the disciples were scared and Jesus wasn't in that boat with them. They were beaten back by wind and waves. They were a long way from land. They couldn't see the shore and they were lost. And Jesus wasn't there. How many of us have felt that way? How many of us have felt like wave after wave keeps crashing over our heads? like the wind is against us, like we're having a hard time just staying afloat. It would be way too easy to say that Jesus is in the boat with them in spirit, so everything should be fine. What are they worried about? Be patient. That's not a theology that lasts. Because even though Jesus eventually came to calm the winds and the storm, even though I believe Jesus eventually will do that in each of our lives, there was a time in which Jesus wasn't in that boat. And if I'm honest, there were times in the midst of this summer of death and disease in a hospital that I really wondered where Jesus was. And I'm sure there have been times when you felt the same, where you can empathize with feelings of helplessness, of fear, of loneliness and doubt. But the next thing I notice is this. When Jesus at last arrives on the scene, when he walks up upon the sea to come to them, to save them, the disciples are so shell-shocked. They've so given into their fear and their fate that they don't even recognize him. They're terrified. They say it's a ghost. Because, you see, when fear shuts us down, we stop looking for hope. When fear shuts us down, we stop looking for help. When fear shuts us down, I wonder if we can still try to see the face of Christ. The face of Christ, which might appear in a different way than we expect. A friend, a doctor, a stranger, even a chaplain coming to help us. And the final thing I want you to notice in this passage is Peter's reaction to this miracle. Because you see, I've read this story a lot of times, and I always thought that it was Jesus who asked Peter to come out and join him on the water, that it was some kind of test of faith. But it's not. If you look closely, you see that Peter asks Jesus before he was even sure that it was Jesus and he thought it was a ghost. He asks Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water. Peter asks Jesus to dare himself to do the impossible, to overcome his fear, and so what comes next 
the part of the story that we often hear in church school, I'm not so worried about. Does Peter walk successfully on the water and overcome his fear and doubt? Yes. Does Peter also fail and begin to sink? Yes. Does Jesus reach out his hand and lift him out of the water? Yes. He does all these things, but it's because he dared to. The boat we're called to get into with others, the water we're called to explore and batter, none of it is static. It's moving. We're moving. Our feelings and circumstances are moving like a storm, and there will be times when we row that boat and engage in empathy successfully. And there will be times when we fail. There will be times when we walk on the water, and there will be times when we get scared and we begin to sink. There will be times when we see Jesus, and there will be times when it seems like Jesus has failed us. And yet, even in that, we are not alone. Jesus didn't send his disciples out onto the boat alone. He didn't send us into the rough waters of this world alone. We have each other, and we have that skill of empathy. And so, I want to end today in a true chaplaincy fashion not by giving you any real advice or practical tools to put into your belt, but by asking you a few open-ended questions to make you reflect, to make you think, to make you think where, is, where do you see God in this story and where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you feel that you are being called to get into the boat with others? Where do you feel that you're being called out onto the waters like Peter? Where in your life, in your world, in your family, in your community, is there weeping? And how can you weep alongside those people? Where in your life, in your world, in your family, in your community, is there rejoicing? And where and how can you rejoice alongside them? I know for me that after a summer of so much weeping, I am very, very grateful to be able to rejoice alongside all of you this morning. And it is in that spirit of rejoicing that I say amen.